As this tree delights in moist or wet soil, where agues chiefly abound, the general maxim that many natural maladies carry their cures along with them, or that their natural remedies lie not far from their causes, was so very apposite to this particular case that I could not help applying it. This is Ghosts in Your Blood, the podcast where I talk about weird old beliefs that actually worked or had some merit, but the justifications for them were shaky at best. On today's episode, the inaugural episode, I want to talk about some of the lore and beliefs that surrounded the willow tree, because the willow tree has been used in medicine in a lot of different cultures for a very long time. All right, the first thing I want to do is unpack the quote from the intro of the episode. And this is a quote from Edward Stone from the early 1700s. And Edward Stone was a natural philosopher and a cleric for the Church of England, where those jobs were fairly interchangeable at the time. You could be a scientist, and you could be a cleric, and you could do medicine. What a wonderful time to be alive. I also wanted to note his work in astronomy, just because it's very interesting. He was interested in the transit of Venus, which is when Venus passes between Earth and the Sun, and you can track its movement because you can see it against the Sun. And he published, this is the title in its entirety, it's The Whole Doctrine of Parallel Axis Explained and Illustrated by an Arithmetical and Geometrical Construction of the Transit of Venus over the Sun, 6th of June, 1761 and it covered material related to the upcoming transit of Venus that was coming in 1769. Oh, and he also did politics. Like every scholarly man in the 1700s. All a part of a day's work for Edward Stone, he wrote a letter, and that is where this quote is from, and it's called, An Account of the Success of the Bark of the Willow in the Cures of Agues in a letter to the Right Honorable George Earl of Macclesfield, President of R.S., from the Reverend Mr. Edmund Stone of Chipping Norton in Oxfordshire. I do want to point out that it says that it's from Reverend Edmund Stone, but that is a clerical error that apparently caused some confusion. In the quote, he talks about agues. So I had to look this up, but agues in this context refer to a joint pain, most likely, or rheumatism. He goes on to talk about maladies, natural maladies, which are ailments, just illnesses in general. Just a quick little side note from me while I'm editing. I had a look at the etymology for malady because it has been popping up a lot in my life in general lately, and I was just wondering. And it comes from male, meaning ill, and habitus, meaning to have. So malahabitus turns into maladies. Now you know that. And he says that they carry their cures along with them, or their remedies lie not far from their causes. The reason this is so important is because this is the basis, the meat, of this entire episode. My friends, this is a immaculate piece of logic called the Doctrine of Signatures. I'll be circling back 
to Edward Stone and his contributions to the story. But first, we're going to talk a little bit about the Doctrine of Signatures, where it came from, why it's relevant. So the concept dates from the time of Discordes and Galen, which is at the end of BCE and getting right into the Common Era. And just another quick little not important side note, there is no year zero. I don't know why I thought there was, but it's only a 1 BCE and 1 CE, or ADBC, whichever terms you want to use, that's fine, but there's no year zero. The core of this concept is essentially that plants resembled or grew in ways that alluded to their use for man. There was a writer who wrote a book in 1896. His name was Andrew Dixon White. The book was called A History of the Warfare of Science with Theology in Christendom, which sounds fascinating and you can read at the Gutenberg website. Andrew Dixon White in general was a pretty awesome person. So he was the first president of Cornell University. He was also the first president of the American Historical Association. He had quite a lot of accolades to his name, but my personal favorite is that he married the first woman in the United States to earn a PhD, Helen McGill. In White's Theology versus Science book, He summarizes the doctrine of signatures quite nicely. He says, It was reasoned that the Almighty must have set his sign upon the various means of curing disease which he provided. So it really only makes sense that the theory of the doctrine of signatures was so prominent during the time of Galen, Hippocrates, Desecorides, just because it makes sense, especially if everything going on in your world you attribute to being an act of God. So if God is making you ill, but he loves you, he wants you to be able to figure out how to cure yourself. A couple of my favorite examples would be first off the walnut, which looks like a brain. So clearly that can cure all of your brain problems and the very wonderful orchid root that looks pretty much exactly like testicles. So unless you're allergic to walnuts, eating a walnut to help ease some encephalitis perhaps probably won't kill you, but it's definitely not going to speed up any recovery time. While I don't know the full list of Doctrine of Signature-based cures, I will say most of them are probably somewhat harmless, even though they are probably also not that effective. The problem comes when there are actual dangerous or toxic plants that are being used as cures, and there are quite a few examples of this as well. One of the major ones is a plant called birthwort, which is used for pregnancies, but it's carcinogenic and damaging to kidneys. So in general, if you're just, you know, walking along in the woods and you feel like your ears are a little sore, maybe you've got a little bit of water retention in there, don't just pick up a mushroom and pop it in your mouth because the cross section kind of looks like an ear because before you know it, you're tripping balls and talking to a bush. Now that we have this decent understanding of what the doctrine of signatures was, where the logic was coming from, we're going to go back to our friend Edward Stone in the 1700s and see what he was doing. So Edward Stone was taking on a like-cures-like approach, but the question is, what was it that he thought he was curing? 
The illness that Stone was referring to is most likely to be a joint pain or rheumatism of some type. And I had a look into the history of rheumatism and the etymology of it. Rheumatoid arthritis has root words in rheumatism meaning flow and the suffix oid meaning resembling. So this alludes to the joint inflammation resembling rheumatic fever. The word rheuma might also refer to swelling at the joints, as well as the fact that wet weather worsened the symptoms. The general idea that Edward Stone would have had was that his joint pain or rheumatism was, if not caused by cool damp weather, at least exasperated by it. So logically, from the doctrine of signatures, it only makes sense that he would look for a plant or a cure in some place cool and damp. And a tree that thrives in cool, damp weather is a perfect candidate to help with an ailment that is exasperated by cool, damp weather. Edward Stone went ahead and experimented by drying a pound of the willow bark out to create a powder, and he found that it did actually have some pain-relieving qualities. He also conducted somewhat of a scientific investigation, and he gave it to 50 different people and noticed it had some astringent qualities as well. I should also note here that as well as the like-cures-like approach logic that he was employing here, he also noticed that it had a very similar bitter taste to Peruvian bark, which at the time was a known treatment for malaria. Now, this is definitely not the first example of willow bark being used medicinally. First Nations used willow bark tea, ancient Sumerians used it and documented it on clay tablets, Greeks and Chinese also were known to use willow. Another tree used was poplar, which had a very similar effect. The reason I want to focus on Edward Stone is because he did something different, in that he ground up and dried up the bark, which actually made the active ingredients more effective. So what was it that was actually happening when people would make their willow bark tea or chew on pieces of willow bark to help with their pain? There's an active ingredient in the bark called salicin, and when you consume salicin, it gets digested and broken down into salicylic acid, which I know you've heard about because it's an active ingredient in so many skincare products because it is anti-inflammatory. And if you are like me at all, that is not enough of an answer for me, so I really wanted to know what exactly is it that salicylic acid does at the site of inflammation to help alleviate said inflammation. Basically, what it does is alter the expression of the gene responsible for the production of prostaglandin, and that's a group of lipids responsible for inflammation, blood flow, and clotting. So as you can imagine, when Edward Stone went ahead and he ground up that tree bark and he dehydrated it, he really broke it down into a much more concentrated form, whereas previously chewing on the bark or consuming it in a tea would have been much more diluted. So while the salicin is very effective on its own, it's actually quite harsh for consumption in those intense quantities. So considering that those quantities were so harsh to consume, it only made sense that eventually somebody came up with something a little bit more gentle. A chemist named Charles Frederick Gerhardt produced the very first acetyl salicylic acid in the 1840s. Now, this version of acetyl salicylic acid was kind of impure and it was kind of unstable, but significantly less harsh than taking just straight up salicylic acid, and it still had the same mechanism of action in the body. 
But as I said, that was kind of an unstable way of doing things. So in 1897, the structure for acetyl salicylic acid was established and a more efficient method of synthesis was created. And the most exciting part of this story is that the chemists that came up with this work for a little company you might have heard of called Bayer. That's right, B-A-Y-E-R, Bayer, the pharmaceutical giant. And the product that they created was freaking aspirin. So I'm not going to get super in-depth on what aspirin is because it is so widely used. A quick little search just tells me a very wide margin of annual usage of 50 to 120 billion pills annually worldwide. There are multiple ways of administration. We are very familiar with the tablet, as per Bayer, and there's also intravenous and intramuscular. It is metabolized in the liver, and the main active ingredient is simply a combination of carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen, and there really isn't anything else in there. One of the biggest things to point out with aspirin is that it is the drug that is given shortly after a heart attack to decrease the risk of death. The use of it long-term also helps prevent further heart attacks and blood clots for people that are high risk. It is a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug, or NSAID, very similar to other NSAIDs, and it also suppresses the normal functioning of platelets. So you probably knew most of that information already because it is such a widely used drug. But what I want to know is what it's up to lately. It's been around since 1899, so it's had some time to develop and for the scientific community to play around with it. So what are they developing with it? There have been several studies going on. One is preeclampsia prevention. And preeclampsia, it's a pregnancy complication characterized by high blood pressure and signs of damage to another organ system, most often the liver and kidneys. Now, there are some controversial findings in the prevention of preeclampsia, where aspirin was found effective in preventing preeclampsia in high-risk patients, and mainly those with a history of preeclampsia. There doesn't really seem to be any hard evidence that taking aspirin daily will prevent preeclampsia just for any regular person. There has also been a modest reduction in cataracts. So cataracts is a clouding in the lens of an eye, which you see in old people and quite often old dogs. My dog has cataracts. She's very cute and she's very old. The studies of aspirin in cataracts is showing a prevention of carbamylation of the lens proteins and prevents cyanate-induced phase separation opacities in vitro. Yes, I very much struggled through getting that sentence out, but the general idea is that this is a possible mechanism by which aspirin could prevent a cataract entirely. Recently, in a pooled analysis of five cardiovascular prevention randomized control trials linked to cancer outcomes, daily aspirin use at any dose reduced the risk of colorectal cancer by 24% and of colorectal cancer-associated mortality by 35% after a delay of 8 to 10 years. And in an expanded meta-analysis of eight cardiovascular randomized control trials, daily aspirin use at any dose was associated with 21% lower risk of all cancer death, including colorectal cancer, with benefit only apparent after five years. 
And of course, I cannot ignore the very recent study that has unfortunately proven to not have any merit. There was studies going on in the prevention of Alzheimer's with just a simple daily aspirin. And very recently, I believe in 2020, that was found out to not really be effective, which is a really big bummer. But this really goes to show how amazing it is that we can have a drug that is used for so long and it's still being found useful in new applications all the time. And that instead of making a whole bunch of new technology, we're just finding new ways to use things that have been serving us for a long time. And that is the condensed story of how the Doctrine of Signatures informed the use of willow bark, which eventually turned into one of the biggest drugs in the world. So that's where aspirin's at now, but what about the Doctrine of Signatures? Where did we kind of leave off with that? Well, it was a very old theory, and it still is a very old theory, that people are still using, of course. My favorite way to find out if people believe in an old theory is to type it into Pinterest, because if you type it into Pinterest, there will be so many modern tips and tricks on how to apply these old remedies to your modern life. Do I have a problem with this? Absolutely not, because from what I can tell, the doctrine of signatures in modern times is simply a dietary advice, which seems to be eat more fruits and vegetables, which all in all, not a bad thing. But if you're eating carrots specifically for your eyes, because when you cut a slice of carrot off, it kind of looks like an eye and not because of all of the vitamin A, there's a little bit of a disconnect there. Some of my favorite Doctrine of Signature dietary advice articles come from tomato, the four-chambered red item, which obviously is going to be good for your heart. And let's not forget the avocado that I guess kind of looks like a uterus? Like, is the seed the baby? I'm not entirely sure, but they're fruits and vegetables, man. If you eat a good variety of them, you're gonna be healthier. Not a leap of faith there, just straight up facts about diet. This has been the first episode of Ghosts in Your Blood, the podcast about old-timey doctor stuff and weird belief systems. Thank you so much for listening. Please rate, review, subscribe, all that good stuff. And I will see you next week where I'm going to be talking about freaking cataracts. It's kind of a gory episode, but I'm already excited about it. And is it even a podcast sign off if I don't tell you to follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Blood Ghosts Pod.